Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 48 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to changing the way that you think about veteran mental health brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. On this episode, we have a conversation with Dr. Ted Bonar, a clinical mental health professional that's dedicated his practice to serving veterans. Dr. Bonar and I have a lot of good conversations, but most importantly, we talk about the need for mental health professionals to get the right training if they want to work with veterans. Over the last couple of years, these trainings have gone online, right, rather than in-person trainings. And it's a webinar or it's a, and some of them are really, really good, right? But is it competent? Is it immersive? Is it, is, it, is it culturally appropriate? Can you ask questions? Can you get in there and talking about uh, why somebody drove the way they did in a combat zone and why learning to drive down University Boulevard is hard and that that's not necessarily PTSD? And if it is, we got to know how to treat PTSD. And if it's not, we have to know how to treat it as reintegration right? That conversation, I am really worried that that conversation is getting lost because, you know, training mental health professionals in veterans work is no longer the, the hot thing. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey folks, uh, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast uh, once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time. To, uh, to listen to the show and to learn more about veteran mental health. You know, whether you're a veteran, uh, a, a family member of a veteran, or a provider that's uh, working with veterans, uh, we definitely appreciate you taking the time to understand more about what's going on. You know, the, uh, a lot of times uh, we have some providers on here, some mental health professionals. You know, we've had our, our share of those who have been in the service like myself and then those who haven't been. Uh, in the service like uh, like my guest today, 
but uh, but have taken the time to learn and understand and, and really uh, get to the bottom of uh, how to kind of bridge that gap. So uh, I would like to uh, introduce my guest today, uh, Dr. Ted Bonar. Ted, hello. Hi there. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, before we really get started, kind of the stuff we're talking about, I'd like you to introduce yourself to the audience and talk a little bit about kind of what you do and what you've done. Okay. Um, well, let's see. Uh, and I and my guess is you want me to focus on why I'm interested in this field and kind of how I got involved in it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, I'm a uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm based in Columbus, Ohio. Moved around a little bit. Um, I'm actually a second career psychologist. Um, meaning, I had a whole first career as a musician for a long time and. Uh, way back about, you know, 4,000 years ago, I got a, uh, bachelor's of music degree. Uh, I was a drummer, lifelong drummer and spent my twenties, uh, playing drums and playing in bands and recording and working at, uh, record labels. And then, uh, so a very different life than what I live now. Uh, and, <clears throat> and very different than, you know, a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today is my guess. <clears throat> um, I hit my early 30s and uh, there were many different things that came into my life that <clears throat> it became clear that, you know, I wanted to make a change. Um, and that's when I entered graduate school and uh, went into psychology. Um, I did not have any, any, uh, any clue that I wanted to work with veterans, uh, military or veterans. It wasn't, it wasn't in my world, right? Like I'm, you know, we see it today with, uh, uh, you know, a minority of our population serving, you know, my, you know, an all volunteer force and, um, you know, what, 1% or I should know the statistic, right, but you know, fractions of, yeah, but it's whether it's a 1% or less. Yeah. Exactly. Like 1% or less of our population has any connection to the military or direct connection to the military. And, and I was, you know, I'm one of the 99% that had just, it just wasn't in my world. I mean, I might've been aware of, uh, world events, but, but nothing else. Um, and this was back, you know, kind of before, um, a lot of the, you know, I think that we're doing a better job over the last five or so years about being aware of the military or I should say civilians like non-military folks like myself um, our society our culture being aware of military and veterans over the last five maybe a little bit more than that years we're doing a better job but back in the early 2000s like nobody was talking about anything unless you were um, unless you're a military family or you're um, or, or you're you're unless you've served. Um, and I was one of the people that just wasn't paying attention to that and didn't know much. Um, I'm in graduate school and I'm in training, right? And I got a placement at the VA in Chicago. And I got that placement. This is in 2005. Uh, so we were just starting to see some... Um, uh, some Afghanistan folks come through, 
the VA, but primarily it was still Vietnam vets and Gulf War vets. And I ended up on that placement, and I wanted that placement because it was a really good site with a great reputation for training. I did not apply to that site because I wanted to work with veterans. I didn't know. I just wanted to be a good, you know, learn how to be a good psychologist. Um, about, um, well, I, I'll cut to the chase. By the end of that year, it's a, it's a year-long training um, commitment. By the end of that year, I knew I had found what I wanted to do. Uh, it had changed my life. It had been a, it had a profound impact on me. Um, I loved everything. I got a chill up and down my spine talking about it. Now it was such an important, profound moment for me. Uh, and I, I just, it, it became part of everything I wanted to do uh, moving forward as a psychologist. I looked for opportunities to work with veterans and military opportunities for training opportunities to learn uh i sought it out on future training sites and i've already been making this kind of a long story and i could make it a longer one uh so maybe we'll get into some of those other things but um that was the beginning of it that of me becoming a psychologist wanting to work with military and veterans uh and since then it's just been one step uh, after another, and I've been involved with some specific organizations that did a lot of work. Um, I am now an independent. Uh, I have a private practice, and I am now a, a person that goes out and does trainings about how to work with military and training other mental health providers, psychologists, social workers, counselors, and I've done a lot of that work. Um, and I just I believe in it so deeply. Uh, I think that there is still such a divide uh, between civilians and military, and I want to close the gap. You know, it, it's not up to me to close it entirely, and I can't, but um, uh, that's certainly where I want my efforts to um, to be focused. So I don't know if I got off on a tangent there. No, no, that was uh, no. I, I think that was great, and it's really uh, interesting that you you came in without any connection. You know, others yeah. um, maybe have uh, had had family or uncles or fathers or something like that, but uh, but you came into uh, working with veterans, um, pro maybe not knowing much more than just what you saw in like Platoon and you know Blackhawk, yeah. you know movies and stuff like that, right? So yeah. what about that year was so impactful for you? Um, that, that, that made this, that it was, it was just an opportunity, but it turned into a calling. It sounded like. Yeah, it, it really did. Uh, and I apologize about my dog barking in the background. Um, I don't know if that's disruptive. Uh, it, it did become a calling and, you know, you have to remember this. So this was my, only my second year of doing any clinical work. So I was, I was green, right? Young and didn't have, I mean, I was this is the second of like, you know, five or six years of clinical training that I was going to get. Um, and I was already all in as a psychologist in training. I knew that, that that was right. And that I, and that this is what I wanted to do would be a psychologist and be a therapist. Um, you know, what I ran into at the VA was, there's some exceptions to this, but by and large, um, individuals who so deeply wanted to, 
They wanted to be better. They wanted to get help. They want, they took it seriously. They were earnest. They were dedicated. They were passionate. Um, and it moved me again and again and again. It was like, you go in as a therapist, you close the door, you know, I'm going to stereotype and say some, you know, some stuff about just general clients. I mean, you can, you know, close the door. Let's, let's, I've done a lot of university counseling centers. So I'm work. I, I've worked at universities quite a bit. And so I'm going to um, be a little bit unfair to that work um, because that work is, is very is, different. Is, it's very different. It's also very important. And there's really good work that gets done there. But it can be true that you can go behind the closed door with, uh, a student in college in a university and they're talking about their roommate who stole their cheese out of the refrigerator right and this is the this is the work right now i'm being a little unfair because that work at university counseling centers is just as complex as any work that i've done anywhere but that is one subset of that work right like which roommate stole the cheese and how do i manage that well, at the VA, that's really not what's happening, right. right? At the VA, everybody that I worked with, every veteran, and I was working with veterans from World War II up to a 19-year-old that just came back again. In 2005, very few veterans. Yeah, just started, yes. Yeah. Just started. But, I had, but, but it was there. Um, but every other era, back to an 85-year-old man that... Um, you know, from World War II and, and some guys that were on the Indianapolis, like just some astounding stories of, uh, you know, where these, these guys came from. And just every one of them was powerful and moving and profound and earnest. Now, the subsection of, of the, that is the exception to what I'm talking about at the VA is there's absolutely, there was absolutely a subsection of of people that had memorized their list of symptoms and were talking about service connection and what are my benefits and how is this treatment going to affect my benefits and that kind of stuff. And so that was there and that it's still there, it but is, it's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely it is, but it's min it's, 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 it's not the majority. And even of that subset, like, that says something about the kind of work that you can do with that person also. So the, the depth of the work was so profound to me. I just couldn't get away from it. Right. I just wanted it. And so that was it. I, I guess that's kind of selfish, right? That it moved me as a therapist to do something right. To be better that, that it, it satisfied something in me that I wanted to do. I didn't want to just punch a clock. I wanted to help somebody. Everybody I came, came into contact with, they wanted help. They said it in different ways and they had different needs, but um, it was just that powerful. So uh, does that- Yeah, and, and I think that, um, and, and knowing my experience, both as a combat veteran and as a therapist, is these are things that you hear um, that are outside the normal realm of, of, of what we would experience just in an, a U.S. community. And so you coming in not having any, any deep understanding um, would hear things that in many ways are shocking. Um, and they're not shocking to, to combat veterans, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, an example that I can freely give is one of my co-hosts, uh, uh, Eddie Lazary, on one of his shows, we were talking about a point in which he was um, uh, instructed to go out into theater. Uh, a, a colleague of his had just hit an IED, uh, and his platoon sergeant came up to him, and, and right before he went out, and he said, Lazary, make sure you find his legs. Mm. Like, that's not a phrase that you would hear at Kmart, right? That's, that's not right. something that you would hear in your normal day-to-day, you know. But but for veterans, that is both commonplace and just one click on the wheel of, of just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of things that are outside the realm of, of normal human or normal American existence, let's say. And so for sure. you, that's the kind of stuff that you would hear. I think that's a, it, that would be different from Who Stole My Cheese, Mm-hmm. It's these very amazing, I mean, I've, you know, uh, veterans that were, you know, like you said, at the turning point of history um, with some really, really significant, but also amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think, I think you're right, but, you know, I learned how to hear that stuff. Right. Um, and, and I, I learned it over time. Like I didn't, I, I, I don't think. I think I was a perfectly fine practicum student that year. Um, but sure, I had to work through what it was like to hear that stuff, right? There was a learning curve for me. Um, but, you know, I, I think any mental health professional, uh, if they're being honest, um, I don't know that that ever ends, right? Sure. Like, I'm going to keep hearing stories. Now, I'm better at hearing somebody's story and experience. Um, I have heard more. I don't get shocked as often, but you know, having a human experience in as a therapist, there's value in that, right? And and in my experience at the VA or working with, even if it was early on or now, um, you know, I, somebody can tell a story like that, or or you know, something horrific or an atrocity or or. Um, you know, or anything along those lines. And, you know, I'm allowed to have a reaction, right? And it it actually, that's part of what it took me some time to learn as well. How can I have a reaction without it seeming like I don't understand anything about what you're talking about? Right? So there was a learning curve for me there. Um, at At the same time, there were people talking about we're, we're veterans, um, and I've also worked with active duty, uh, military, um, who want to talk about their life having nothing to do with the military. Exactly. Yes. And, and that was, I, I think also something important and I think it remains important and, and, and it can be tricky to talk about, um, because I've had people just say, look, I don't want to talk about any of that stuff. I'm not, that's not what I'm here for. That's I'm not, not worried what, about it. Mm-hmm, right. And, and meanwhile, like a mental health provider, like a civilian mental health provider like myself, like I've had all this training. Well, let me screen for PTSD. Let me screen for this and that. And they're like, I can't talk to my wife. Right. Or, you know, or I, 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 I can't get out of bed because I'm, you know, or I'm, you know, because I'm depressed or something, I'm being, I'm just making stuff up now, but you know, they, and have nothing to do with their military service. Um, I, I think that, um, being, uh, I, I've gone in and out of a couple of different, uh, 
setting, right? Like I was in the VA and that was VA stuff, veteran stuff. I then went into university counseling center work, working as the veteran specialist. I did a lot of other stuff there that we may or may not touch on. But in that case, that's where I met a lot of people. They were like, yeah, well, I was in the military and I did deploy, but now I'm here and I got to talk about this other thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. What? And how do we integrate that stuff? And it's not all, um, you know, we as mental health providers, um, you know, I'll do, use the collective we that'll include me, uh, you know, can, can be challenged not to put a veteran in the veteran only category. Like, oh, yeah, veterans are people too, right? Right, right. <laughs> oh, veterans are human beings that have lives, you know also outside of their military service. Okay, so when do you ask about stuff? When do you not ask about stuff? Um, so I think that's been part of my journey as well, is to, is to try to listen at that level. And I think that's very important. And it's, it's great that you brought that up. I've experienced that myself, uh, in which, uh, and I was talking to a psychologist and, and you know, asked uh, uh, how many deployments and, oh, I've had five deployments. And she said, well, of course you have PTSD. Like no symptoms, no, you know, no nothing. And I had to back off and I'm like, well, actually three of those deployments were nothing, right? They were, right. you know, sleeping on a cot for a year. So let's not, you know, but let's not jump to that conclusion. Let's not automatically go to the place. And, and that sometimes can perpetuate the stereotype of all veterans, you know, that, that sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, absolute of all veterans have PTSD or, you know, all veterans must feel ashamed about their service or whatever. And, and so if you're starting from a place where you think you already know the solution or already know the problem, then you're going to add, you're going to take your skills and apply the solution when it may be misplaced. Yeah, I, I've, I've really, that's something I'm so passionate about. And I, I try to, I try to address that and talk about that in different ways. I've, I've you know, I've run into to people, I, I'm going to say some, I'm going to use some bad examples. I don't think that this is the bulk of the mental health uh, profession, but it's clearly there. I've had mental health professionals, you know, um, be adamant and passionate that deployment in and of itself is a trauma or can be. And I'm like, no, (laughs) right? Like, well, we, we might have to talk about that a little bit. Like that's an assumption that we make that then stigmatizes veterans further. So it's, it, it would be as if the, the mental health provider without any military experience would say, well, that would be traumatic for me because right. I wouldn't be used to that being away from my family and sleeping, you know, and, and whatever the images are, I'm sleeping on the ground for a year in this hut in some faraway country. That would be traumatic for me. So therefore, it must be traumatic for everyone. Um, it, that's a little bit of a universality. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one version of it. Another version of it is this much deeper experience where I've heard people talk about like, well, the only reason somebody would uh, would enter the military military is through this societal manipulation, that that's the only way they can get out of something. And that's right. They, they dig into this, all of this deep uh, sociocultural stuff and saying that that is like a cultural trauma that drove somebody and it's like hang I was just, on. yeah you know <laughs> i was just like, tired we, of i didn't <laughs> want to sleep in my dad's basement anymore that was it i, I was right. tired of working at pizza places and right. that was it 
And that's right. It's like we've already lost talking to the person before we've even met the person, right? Um, so that's like one end of the spectrum. I don't run into that too often, but it's out there. The other end of the spectrum is is more along the lines of what you were saying before. Like if you've deployed, you must have experienced trauma. Uh, you must have PTSD. Or if you are a woman, then you must have been sexually assaulted and therefore have PTSD, which is also a you know a vastly untrue statement. Um, now somebody might have experienced a traumatic event. But even if somebody's experienced a traumatic event or even a series of them, that does not mean they have PTSD. Somebody may have been sexually assaulted, and that doesn't mean somebody has PTSD. Now, those are complex details that have to be worked out and talked to with a human being, right? Right. The right. actual veteran you're talking to. Um, and those are, you have to learn how to ask the questions. But if you have those as assumptions, mental health professionals are starting from, I, I think, are not starting from a great place as to how to have a connection with the veteran, right? Does that make sense? No, it does. Absolutely. And, and so for you, you as a uh, civilian and as someone that were, you know, you, you were coming, you were in the mental health field and you approached veteran status, whereas I came at it from the other side. I came at it from I was a veteran and emerged into the mental health field. Um, mm -hmm. And so in, in, in different ways, we can be, um, you know, variously effective. Um, but for you, how was it for you trying to learn the culture as you were, I mean, building the plane as, a, as you were flying it, so to speak, yeah. as, as trying to, to get over that, um, that hesitation from veterans, um, especially at the point where you went into the VA, these veterans have, they had heard, seen it all, heard it all, you know, 10, 15 years, 25 years, probably some of them were just, I mean, they were so jaded. How did, how was it for you to get into that? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it's a great question. Um, I don't get the question as often as I, as I used to. Um, I have more confidence now. I have more training now. Um, it might also be because I'm not working in the VA. Uh, when I got it, when I was in the VA, uh, I'd get that question virtually every time I met somebody. Or, what, what do you know about what I went through? Or, or how do you know, what, what do you know? Um, what I've come to believe, um, and I, I had far more training about military culture after working at the VA than while I was at the VA. The VA was immersive, right? I just was in it. Right. Uh, I had supervision and I had my experience of going one hour into the next hour into the next hour into the next hour. Uh, and so I, some of it I learned by attrition kind of thing. Um, but I had much more specific training after. Um, either way, whether it's at the VA or now, I, I, I still think I have the same approach. Diversity matters. Diversity of experience is in every single session I have with anybody, with anybody. Um, whether it's based on race or gender or sex or religion or politics or socioeconomic status or age or neighborhood or country of origin, you name it. Something is in there that you don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand where I come from. You don't understand how I see the world. You don't understand what informs me. 
<clears throat> you don't understand why I'm asking for help. You couldn't possibly help me. What do you know about where I've been? Every single person that I could work with could say those exact same things. It's my responsibility to be able to respond with dignity, with respect, uh, with curiosity, with acknowledgement that I don't know it. If I go into any session with a veteran thinking I know the lingo and I start talking with slang or acronyms the way you do, you're going to spot it from me a mile away. You're going to spot it the first time I say something that I don't really know. So, you know, I, I, I lean back on authenticity. Um, I'm no expert, right? Now, I'm an expert in some things, right? I'm an expert in treatment of PTSD. I'm an expert in uh, treatment of suicide. I'm an expert in working with somebody with depression. I'm work right? That's the mental health field. I'm not an expert in guns. I'm not. Right. I'm not an expert in the military. I know a lot about the military. I think I'm culturally competent about uh, how to work with somebody with a military history in the context of mental health and treatment. Um, but I can't hold myself up there as something I'm not. Right. I can go give a lecture on military culture. But me giving that lecture on military culture is how do I understand that person as a mental health professional? How do I know the right questions to ask? Right. Um, I get. I think what I'm trying to do is is kind of talk a little bit about my overall approach. That um, I'm going to shy away from saying, "Oh no, I do understand exact exactly what you've been through." Well, you know what? How could I? Right. Right. I, I, I wasn't in Vietnam. Right. I was born in 1968. So. All right. Does that mean that I can't help a Vietnam veteran? I hope the answer is no. I hope the answer is no. It doesn't mean I can't. I hope it means I can. If the answer is I can't, then the only people that we're going to have treating Vietnam veterans are other Vietnam veterans. And I, I think that stigmatizes veterans more than if I learn enough to be able to help a Vietnam veteran. Extending that to somebody who's 25 who just came back from somewhere, you know, the DMZ, right, who just came back from a deployment that was not in a combat zone, somebody who just came back from something you can't talk about, something, somebody that never got out of Kansas, right, I have to be able, you know, if the only people that can help those folks are the people that shared the exact same experiences, we don't have enough mental health providers. Right. <laughs> and and we don't in the nation anyway. I mean, that's number one. Um, but but one of the or, or the primary reason why I came in, obviously, where my interest was that there uh, and there was acknowledged not to be enough even combat veterans in the mental health counseling field in general, but much less likely that it's a, an OIF or, or OEF veteran like myself, you know, that there aren't, there simply aren't enough of us. I recognize that there are not enough me, uh, a, a combat veteran with no mental health professional experience in the military that come out and, and gain that. So you're right. There's no way that, that we could provide enough. Uh, but then, 
again, and that's what this uh, this show is about, and the blog is about, is is trying to help others who want to be, who want to learn, like you. You obviously had that desire to learn more, to help the most that you could for the clients that were in front of you, to help those that are interested become that what you were call, talking about, culturally competent. Um, that that I can maybe talk about things, or I can explain things in a certain way as a mental health professional to other mental health professionals, um, that, that they could then understand that. And, and that sounds like sort of where you got to later in your career, where you had developed a level of competency and then turned around and passed it on to other providers. Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 absolutely. That, that was, I mean, that's really my, that became my path. Uh, I was in university counseling work for a couple of years and this was in, 2007, 8, 9, 10-ish, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, something like that. And even then, okay, so OEF, OIF had been happening for a while, but there still wasn't like this overwhelming uh, movement towards how do we help veterans. Uh, it was still like, well, the VA is there, send them to the right. VA. Mm-hmm. Right. That's you're talking about with in DOD. DOD was pretty much like that's now that's the VA's problem. We right. broke them. They fixed them. That's right. Well, not only the DOD. Yes, the DOD, um, but everywhere else. Universities did not have it together. Community mental health centers did not have it together. Private practitioners did not have it together as far as being ready to work with veterans that were coming home. And it was around 2007, eight, where it's like, Oh, all these guys are coming back. And now we got to, so people, so the SOs started springing up and I ended up working with, um, an organization I, I hooked up with center for deployment psychology. Uh, and a lot of people know about that organization. We were really one of the first, uh, and I was on faculty on staff, um, as of about oh nine or 10, uh, as one of their subject matter experts and involved in creating the curriculum and teaching the curriculum how to work with military and veterans um, to mental health providers. As a civilian, I was primarily teaching other civilian providers. I did do some training for DOD providers because we were involved with um, MTF providers uh, in psychology internships and in staff at MTFs. Um, so I got, I was with them for four or five years. Uh, and I was on the road training mental health professionals about how to work with, whether it's transition, reintegration, culture, depression, suicide, PTSD, uh, sexual assault, women in the military, that kind of stuff. Um, I was doing that for, and that's, and that's really where, um, when my career was like, this is, I've got it. Like, this is what I want to be doing. That was, that was the drive for me. And that's when I met a lot of, um, you know, so many different, um, providers around the country, some of which were fantastic and knew so much and were so ready. Others were starting from scratch. Like, you know, what's the military and, you know, entering the military on its own is traumatic. Like, well, you know, you know what, that person is still there asking me for help. So I want to, help that person say, well, actually, let's, let's talk about that a little bit, right? How do we, how do we get past that to a different place? So that, that's kind of where my road ended up going. So, and, and that's really interesting. I'm, and I'm glad that you brought that up, Ted, because I see, 
uh, when I see in my community or, or around the, the nation where somebody's trying to say this is um, I'm teaching military cultural competence to providers, they always start off with the basics, with the assumption that a provider doesn't have any uh, understanding. So, like, let me explain to you what HUA means, and these are what the stripes mean, and you know, and, and like, it's always a very basic level where where you had some providers like, look, I got all that, you know, I need to get into the nuances of the paradox of them, you know, having emotions in in one theater that were effective, but now they're home and they're not effective, you know, so. So you saw providers that were at different levels, uh, and, and it's really good that you were able to to modify. You're able to speak at the basics, but those that needed advanced um, understanding, that you were able to do that too. I'm not seeing that in a lot of trainings. Yeah, that that was really <clears throat> that was kind of our mission because we had to 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 train and and teach to the full spectrum, right? Um, I I I remember vividly and i would still use it if i was doing those specific trainings yeah i would put some basic acronyms up on a powerpoint slide and and i'd get to oef oif and before i had like what it was what it stood for i'd ask the question how many people in the room is to 50 60 or 100 people how many people in the room know what oef and oif stand for and maybe five percent of a room of civilian providers would say they knew what oef or oif was and right okay well th- this is a person that is starting from scratch right um and like it, you don't have to know the 7000 acronyms but you need to know oef oif if you learn nothing else coming out of today's training know what this is right we had to teach to that person because that that person may work with a veteran and if the veteran is like who's this you know guy um i want I want to prevent that. I want to prevent the veteran walking out with no faith, with having no faith in mental health providers, right? Um, and at the same time, we had to amp up and have really nuanced, sophisticated training in evidence-based treatment of PTSD and suicide because it's not being done enough. Um, and all of these things that we're talking about are huge barriers to care for military and veterans to believe that mental health providers can help them. And mental health providers, we, I, I think we, we must demand that mental health providers do a better job at speaking the language so that they don't send a veteran off saying, you know, what does this guy know? Right, right. And, and, and even that is a level of awareness that it needs to be on the, the mental health providers part um, is that the amount of whatever you want to call it, intestinal fortitude, courage, um, I'm just fed up with this, the amount of, of effort that it took for that veteran to come into that room. Yeah. And then if they go up against, like if they knock on the door and there's no answer, or they knock on the door and it's somebody who isn't effective, it's likely they're not going to re-engage. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I often say a veteran doesn't need a reason to avoid mental health treatment, and a bad mental health provider can can essentially, and I, and I've seen it, as you said, and this isn't universal, um, but I've seen it where they go away two or three, four years later. Now they come back when life has crushed them again and say, okay, maybe I'll give this a shot. But, but that negative experience could keep that veteran from years of wellness, um, that, uh, that just some basic understanding could have prevented. 
I totally agree. And, and it's actually one of my real worries right now. Um, training mental health providers was hot between 2010 and 2015. And in my experience, it's not hot right now over the last couple of years. Um, training mental health providers was this thing where a lot of money went into it and DOD did this. And then we had some contractors like CDP, which is where I was, and some other people were doing it. And, and, and I would lay out the argument that you just laid out perfectly, right? And I did a lot of work with universities and university counseling centers because at the time before, like before 2009 and 10, universities, like a lot of people just say, oh, well, go to the VA, like we were talking about before. Well, wait a minute, at a university, a veteran at a university coming home, paying their um, student health fee has as much right and access to care at the on-campus counseling center as going 75 miles away to the VA. And it's convenient and they paid for it and they should get their sessions. And if that's true, then the people in that counseling center um, better be ready so that the veteran doesn't turn around and walk out because, you know, nobody knows anything. Um, so a lot of attention was paid to kind of, to trying to bridge that gap. Over the last couple of years, these trainings have gone online, right? Rather than in-person trainings. And it's a webinar or it's a, and some of them are really, really good, right? But is it competent? Is it immersive? Is it, is it, is it culturally appropriate? Can you ask questions? Can you get in there and talking about uh, why somebody drove the way they did in a combat zone and why learning to drive down University Boulevard is hard and that that's not necessarily PTSD? And if it is, we gotta know how to treat PTSD. And if it's not, we have to know how to treat it as reintegration, right? That conversation, I am really worried that that conversation is getting lost because, you know, training mental health professionals in veterans work is no longer the, the hot thing. It's not that it doesn't exist, but it's not the hot thing anymore, right? There are other hot things out there that are getting, and, and there are other things that are worthy, right? Honestly, there's this, there's a, a great, great movement towards uh, I can think of two of them, um, right? Suicide prevention, good. I'm never going to say that's not important. Um, and diversity. And I'm never going to say diversity isn't important. It absolutely is. Um, but what that means is there's only so many dollars to go around. And the training for veteran-specific cultural competency or veteran-specific therapy competency, that is, it's no longer the number one, two, or three you know, priority in the field. This is my opinion, of course. I don't have a statistic to back that up. Um, but I'm I'm concerned about some of the concern about the thing that you just raised. Like, how do we make sure that a veteran walking into a community mental health center gets the treatment and doesn't walk out saying that they don't know what they don't know what they're doing? Right. I'm I'm really concerned about that. Right. And, and that's exactly and some of the again, the, the reason why, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do this and, and obviously bring mental health providers um, to the veterans and normalize uh, as sort of that experience. Um, but it's something that that I always say, if a veteran is going to knock on the door and that's what we're trying to do now, we're trying to say 
you know, reach out for help. If you're suicidal, reach out for help. If you're, um, you know, if you're in crisis, there's, you know, we're trying to, and, and of course it's not happening either on a general mental health level or even specifically veteran mental, but we're doing our best to try to make that more normalized and say, yes, veteran, if you're in crisis, reach out for help. Then when that veteran reaches out for help and they don't receive the help that they were quote unquote promised, then they're just, well, I'm, I'm even... I'm not even back at square one. I'm three feet back from yeah. square one um, and, and screw it. And I'm just not going to bother because you might've lost a little faith at that point. Right. Or a or, lot. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or ver yeah. Verified the, the, the fact that, well, I knew it wasn't going to work and you just confirmed it and just that's solidified right. my belief. Um, yeah. You know, and so there's danger there. I think that's where we are in the field and as mental health professionals. And it's, a, and it's a real barrier. Um, and, you know, talking about, suicide for a second there's great suicide prevention awareness we're doing better than ever about awareness campaigns um you know just about everybody knows 1-800-273-8255 and press one if you're a veteran just about everybody i mean they've done a great job um and I, i'm i'm i know a lot of those folks and i work with those folks and i'm proud of those folks and um but the next piece is how do the evidence-based treatments get implemented and disseminated? And that's the concern. The VA does it, is doing really well. Um, let's, you know, before we even say the myth, let's clear it up. The VA, people that get treatment at the VA um, are getting better treatment than just about anywhere else. And, and that's statistically proven, right? We have the research that shows that. Um, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to the VA. It doesn't mean that everybody can get to the VA. It doesn't mean everybody wants to go to the VA, right? So good, the people that use the VA are by and large getting outstanding care by mental health providers. Um, and it's not nearly enough because there are more providers who don't, who aren't in that system that are getting the training of evidence-based treatment for suicide uh, for, you know, preventing a suicide and we have it, we know how to treat it. So we're doing a good job with making sure people know who to call to get for help. But if they get a referral, does the referral know what to do? And now we're talking about money, right? Right. Because right. it costs money and it costs time to, and it costs training and it costs commitment of organizations to train their people. Now the VA is doing that, but what about the outpatient staff at a hospital that isn't a VA, right? What about community mental health centers? What about private practitioners? So this is the this is the challenge of the of the profession right now. We know how to treat PTSD and suicide. We absolutely do with good results. Um, finding the right provider isn't so easy. It should be easier. Right. And so in, 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 in even on that with the suicide thing and everybody says we need to solve the suicide problem, but the suicide, the veteran suicide epidemic is just indicative of the deeper problem. You know, suicide is and, and not to trivialize it and very much, but it's a symptom. 
it is a it is a, a lagging indicator of whatever that veteran is experiencing uh, and so uh, and again not to trivialize it but i often describe it as if i go into the doctor with a runny nose the doctor needs to understand whether that's allergies or whether that's the flu because mm -hmm. they treat those two things differently now if i'm a you know if a veteran comes in with suicidal ideation is it because of substance use and their family life is wrecked or is it because of PTSD? Because I'm going to address each of those differently. That's or right. is it because of their guilt and moral injury? Or is it because they simply have no purpose and meaning? They've never experienced trauma, but they're so, you know, in, engrossed in their lack of purpose and meaning that, that, that suicide is there. So the correlation, the one-to-one -one correlation that suicide must mean the veteran has PTSD, that's just as false an assumption as all combat veterans have PTSD. Yeah. And so trying to explain that kind of nuance and and even the the ability to assess the difference between the two, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot in here. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is we've only known how to treat PTSD effectively like really effectively we've only known how to treat it for 25 years right. right and it's really only in the last 10 or 10 to 15 that that news is even out there mm -hmm. right and we're still in the stage of trying to get all the providers to learn how to do this and think of it there's plenty of people that have been in the mental health field for 15, 20, 30 years. So if their training was a long time ago and they didn't get additional training with the new techniques to treat PTSD, they're, and they're using really good general therapy techniques to treat PTSD, they're really good therapists, but they're not treating the condition as well as we know how to treat it now, right? So it's actually a real problem in the profession. How do we get somebody that's been in the profession for 15, 20, 30 years, how do we get them to do a new technique, right? How do we treat an old, uh, teach an old dog to, to do a new trick, right? Um, I, I don't say that judgmentally. It's hard to talk about this without it being judgmental against like, uh, against somebody that's been doing this for 30 years. People, somebody who's been doing this for 30 years is really good. Right. right? Um, but there are, but we know more now than we knew before. We know, and so if if PT, if effective PTSD treatment is about 20, 25 years old, effective suicide treatment is younger than that. Effective suicide treatment is, it's essentially started with DBT, um, and it's gotten better since then, right? So that's early 90s, and then it's gotten better since then. It's gotten really, really good in the last five years. You know, the last five years is really recent, right? To get that out into the field is a huge challenge, right? We're all struggling with that right now. So um, yeah, uh, am I going to treat depression? Am I gonna treat suicide? Am I gonna treat PTSD? It all looks a little bit different and that's the challenge, right? And reintegration, right? It could be none of that. It could right. just be how do I uh, reestablish, you know, what skills are useful, and how do I turn off the ones that are no longer no longer apply, and how do I keep the ones that that do, right? That's 
that's not necessarily somebody having PTSD. So that's, I think, what, what some of the profession is, is struggling with right now. No, and I, I really appreciate uh, that you brought that out. I mean, it, that's that's huge. Um, and again, that it's so nuanced and, and we do have to be kind of constantly evolving and, and, and constantly more. It's because the, the situation is evolving. Um, mm-hmm. the, the veterans that, that you worked with in 2005, um, you know, they were separated by their military experience by, by decades in, in many instances. Um, whereas veterans that I'm seeing now, um, you know, it, it's, it's been months or, or it's been years. Um, it's, it's almost like it's been accelerated and it's been exacerbated. Um, yeah. it, personally, for me, I didn't have uh, one year between 2006 and 2013 that I wasn't separated from my family, whether it was training or deployment. So that was a, that was a huge chunk of time where either the entire year um, or portions of the year that I was gone. And so that lays a layer of complexity on top of, um, you know, what, what they commonly knew. And then you have the emerging constructs of, uh, of moral injury um, yeah. being a component of or even separate from um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, Jonathan Shea was talking about it and he saw it in the 80s, but it's really, mm-hmm. again, only emerged deeper um, and, and more prevalent within the last five to 10 years, like you said. And that's, a, again, different techniques to address that. Prolonged exposure absolutely works great if we're dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Existential psychotherapy works for a lack of purpose and meaning, and and how do I make meaning of the loss of my friend and things like that? Prolonged exposure doesn't really apply to survivor's guilt necessarily, and so it's really trying to make that that kind of distinction. And you know what? You you just brought up um, another side, you know, another side of the coin, uh, which... Uh, you know, I've been really fortunate. I, I had psychodynamic uh, and relational interpersonal training before I ever got into working with military and veterans. And you know, some of the existential and psychodynamic therapies that you're talking about, um, they're, they're so very different. And I still come from that place. When I got into working with military and veterans and doing prolonged exposure, I'm a prolonged exposure therapist. and. and you know, suicide, uh, treat, treating suicidal behavior. You know, these are behavioral or cognitive behavioral, like purely behavioral or purely cognitive behavioral techniques. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, grateful for my experience that I've been able to work through each of those paradigms um, to be, because it's a real gear shift as a therapist mm-hmm. to say, I am going to work as a prolonged exposure therapist, which is a behavioral paradigm um, but if we're talking about moral injury and I'm going to get back into my psychodynamic training, which is where I formulate, um, you know, some of that stuff, um, when do I not be a behavioral, uh, psychologist, right? Um, there are a lot of different factions in our profession and the factions in our profession that are, uh, focused on research and PTSD and suicide, they're in the cognitive behavioral camp. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And psychodynamic and relational and existential therapists, I'm going to be, I'm really generalizing. I'm going to make some people mad here. Um, psychodynamic and uh, folks don't trust behavioral evidence based approaches. Evidence based in psychodynamic and evidence based and behavioral approaches will say, 
but we do value you, but these are the constructs that work. And so you have to do it this way. And everybody's talking past each other. And the ability to shift gears, I still value it. I absolutely right. value it. And I, if I'm a, working with somebody in a prolonged exposure, I am a prolong, I am on protocol. I am on session six. And we're starting with a check-in on the homework and blah, 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 blah. Right? I am doing that stuff. And you know what? If we do that work and we get past it and we, and we transition into moral injury and existential stuff and – and we're going to get into psychodynamic constructs. I am in. Like, I love that work and I believe in it. It's very hard to, hard to codify. It's very hard to talk about the evidence base of that. It's so dramatically different. Um, I value both. Um, but that's how many people we have in our field of psychology and social work and counseling. There's so many different approaches. Like, I, I don't always believe in solution-focused therapy. I don't, mm-hmm. right? Right? Sometimes I say, yeah, you should feel like shit. <laughs> right? Just like, I say that all the time, right? right? Um, you know, and I, I, I don't always believe that I have a cognitive behavioral solution that somebody is going to leave with something to practice that's going to make their life better. Um, at the same time, if we're talking about suicide or PTSD, you better believe I'm going to do it because I know it works. It does work. Uh, and if I don't do that stuff, I wonder if I'm practicing ethically. These are how that's how I think about it, right? Um, but the moral injury, I don't know that we've codified that yet. So I'd better have some tools outside of cognitive behavioral interventions uh, where you're gonna, you know, you know, track a thing and tell me if you've improved your moral injury over the next week. Um, I think it takes a little bit longer than that. Um, so I. I, I and that's a tough thing to talk about because there's so many in our profession that really believe in one approach or the other approach. Right. And, and typically with, and, and again, I'm, I work exclusively with veterans and veteran military spouses. I, I've not, uh, uh, I stay away from teens, you know, so I'm, I'm, you know, and, and I'm very much focused on, but, but for someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder from a, a vehicle accident, for example, yeah. That, that the the moral components and the questioning components and the existential components aren't there, right? You know, or, or not there as, as prominently. And so perhaps with certain clients, if we're dealing with major depressive disorder or children of abuse, for veterans, it's much more complex trauma in complex situations um, that this, this client group or, or veterans um, require an integrated approach because their needs are integrated with each other. I, 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 I don't disagree with that, but I also wouldn't want to make that an absolute, right? That mm-hmm. I would say in my experience as a prolonged exposure therapist, I, I think we can get there within the protocol. Um, I think we can absolutely get to the place where we're talking about guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about not just guilt and shame as words, like deep guilt and shame uh, and self-doubt and, and moral injury. I think we can get there within the protocol. Like I would be – so when I, when I say and, – and there are sometimes when we can't get there within the protocol and we've got to clean up some symptoms and we've got to get some symptoms out of the way in order to get to moral injury another way. 
But just as often, maybe even more than not, in my experience, I can only speak to my experience here, um, I think that we can get there within the protocol um, because those themes are, I think that those themes are there. And, you know, if we're talking, I mean, I'll get in the weeds of, pro, of prolonged exposure just a, very briefly. Um, we can do another podcast on <laughs> what it is. Just, yeah, on that all together, right. <laughs> on that all together, we certainly can, um, which would be fun. Um, you know, when somebody's hearing their story again and again from their own voice from their own experience and they hear it change over time and then they they hear themselves challenge it in a processing and if you don't know what prolonged exposure is what i'm talking about now if if a, if a listener doesn't know this may not make much sense to them but um which is fine but they start to say it doesn't make sense that i think of it that way mm-hmm. like right. it wasn't me that did this like I thought it was I thought this was my fault the whole time. I thought that this was something that I should have prevented this whole time, but I, I couldn't have prevented this. Now, you, you can't just hear me say that and have that be true. Right. But the process of prolonged exposure therapy gets there really powerfully. Not 100 percent of the time because it's not 100 percent. Um, but wow, can it can it happen in a, in a profound manner? So I think you can get to moral injury sometimes uh, through prolonged exposure therapy and through CPT, cognitive processing therapy. Um, but, I, but I also, I fully endorse what you're talking about. Sometimes it calls for, for a different approach to get there. And, and again, and like you said, and as, as you've obviously gotten to that, is, is the awareness of when to shift gears. Um, yeah. and, and that, I think, um, you know, from this conversation that I'm getting is there's a need for mental health providers to understand when to make that shift. Um, and, and also there's a need for veterans to step into that gap to be able to, to take the chance. Because like you said, life sucks and it feels really crappy right now. Yeah. Um, and, and I can walk away and still continue to feel like crap. Or I can work through this and, and have this person who has the skills be able to help me through that. A hundred percent. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm saying again and again, you're hearing me say, you know, PTSD and suicide are treatable. And not only that, the treatments are effective. You've never heard me say they were easy. Right. I mean, right, right. it's the hardest work somebody's going to do. Um, but that said, I can confidently say if we do the work and we do the work the way we were supposed to, I'm really confident we're going to we're going to get somewhere and not, not, you know, not just get somewhere, but get somewhere soon. Right now that's, that's hard work and, and it's not going to be easy. And I'm going to challenge somebody. Um, that said, if we know what's coming, because we do know what's coming in these treatments, we can prepare for them. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what, guess what? Anybody who's gone through a trauma that's walked into my office, Like, let's, let's bust another. Bitch. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I don't want to talk about it. I can't go back there. You know what? Nothing's going to happen in my office that's worse than what, what happened. Exactly. It's just, yeah. you know, and so it's a, it's a myth, not just within the mental health profession, but for people with PTSD and our culture, we don't want to re-traumatize somebody. Nobody's getting re-traumatized by this work. Right. It, does, it doesn't work that way. Now, it may 
feel traumatic, but guess what? You're still in my office on the couch. The door is closed. It's still you and me. We're still doing our thing. That in and of itself is not traumatic, right? Now, some of the work is how to get there and how to talk about that so that that's a learning process. So somebody says, oh, you know what? It didn't happen again. I'm not re-traumatized. Um, but it's, there's not this re-traumatizing experience. There's, oh, now I can talk about it and learn something and do something differently. And there's a process to that. But, you know, that's a, that's a fundamental thing. So re-traumatization is, 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 I think we really need some myth-breaking about that one. It, it just doesn't happen. No, absolutely. And and I think that we as a profession, as mental health providers, aren't talking about that enough. Um, you know, in, in uh, just uh, we're not communicating in this way. A lot of people are talking about veteran mental health, but very few of them um, are mental health professionals speaking directly to veterans like you're doing here, you know, on this podcast or like you're speaking directly to providers or working directly with veterans. You know, we, we kind of maybe talk amongst ourselves, but we've got to get the message down. And, and, and you said that, you know, yes, it, it's not easy. It's, it's not going to be easy. It wasn't easy that you went through it in the first place and revisiting isn't going to be easy, but, but I want to, you know, reiterate the point that you made that it's not going to be forever. You know, this this isn't Freudian psychoanalysis. We're we're going to be doing this for the next two and a half years. Um, So so, yes, it's hard. And yes, it's it it even say it's going to suck. But how much does your life suck now when you don't go through it? Right. I mean, if you don't approach that pit and get through the pit or get through the ravine or get through whatever the metaphor you want to use, get through that dark valley, you're going to be stuck on this this this, you know, functional you know variably functional but you're just not going to feel as well as you do as we know you can on the other side yeah i i mean the truth is it's not just hard i mean trauma is horrific right somebody that's experienced that trauma you know whether it's combat trauma or sexual assault or a car accident right it can be um the, the despair that somebody feels from having experienced that horror is so deep in their lives. Somebody's in such pain, right? So I really need to be able to reflect that back as a therapist. Like, I, I get how deep that is. I really do. Um, I don't want you to walk around with that despair for one minute longer than you have to. In order to get to the place where you don't have to walk around with that fear, we got to go through some really hard stuff, right? But in the context of we know how to do this, we know what it is. Yeah, it's hard, but it's going to go somewhere and you won't have to have this, right? That's a real message that we should be sending. It's a much different message than Vietnam veterans ever had. Mm -hmm. It's a different message than pop culture understands, got PTSD, you're going to be there forever, you're out of control, you're violent, all of that. That's all, none of that's true, right? The truth of PTSD is it's a despairing, uh, it's a despairing condition that destroys somebody's life, um, that makes somebody go, I don't know what to do. Well, guess what? We can help that. We know how. There's, there is good news there. It's not fun. It's not easy, but it's simple, and I know how to do it, and I can help you with that. Let's do this. I'll walk through it with you. 
And on the other side of this is a different life. It's a, it's a life that you're not living right now. You get to live the life you want to live. That's where we need to go with this. And I think the big thing there, Ted, is you, you trust, you as a provider trust that you, you've been there, you've seen the other fields, you've seen that, you know, what happens after. Um, but then the veteran has to trust you as a competent professional that's able to help them through this. And that goes back to our earlier discussion of if the veteran even gets one whiff, you know, it smells fear, whatever it is. If they even get one sense that you're trying to be disingenuous, that you're trying to, to that, that somebody says, oh, I understand it. You're broken. I can fix you. Just, just, just one instance of that can set a veteran back years. I, I totally agree. You know, uh, another myth. I mean, we're kind of, we could do a podcast on myth busting. Um, you know, uh, and this is a mental health professional challenge, right? Like, I don't know if my client can handle it. I don't know. You know, I, it's pretty early to ask him or her to do this thing. You know what? The people in my experience, the people that are walking around with PTSD that have experienced something, what can I do to that person that's going to hurt them? Th- these are the strongest people I've ever met. Now, they don't feel that way. They feel right. weak. Mm-hmm. Right. Part of the condition is I feel weak and I can't handle it. But my experience from the outside uh, is this person is I can't even imagine this person walking around with this memory replaying again and again. Think of the strength it takes to walk through life with that experience never leaving them. It takes such incredible strength to survive the day. I'm asking you to tell a story. I'm asking you to tell the story. I'm going to ask you to tell it again. I'm going to ask you to tell it again. That's prolonged exposure. There's other methods. Um, But what am I going to – how is that going to break the person? They're thinking about it already, right? They're already living with that experience and that memory again and again and again and again. I'm going to help them break that cycle. But there's nothing that I'm going to have that person think – or feel that they're not already thinking and feeling and conquering on a daily basis. Five weeks into treatment, you start to see people shift. You start to see people dress differently and carry themselves differently and talk differently. And it's like five weeks, you're starting to see a change with PTSD. Well, yeah, right. That's how it works. Right. That's so I, I don't want to treat someone as fragile. I'm, I don't want to send a message that you can't handle it and I'm worried about you. Baloney, you can do this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard. I get it. I hear that concern. Makes sense. Makes sense you'd be worried about that. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit, right? You know, we mental health professionals, we got we to gotta have some confidence in this. That it works and there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I'm going to do within the ethical bounds of my profession Right. There's nothing I'm going to do that is going to that be nearly, gonna, yeah, be nearly remotely as like let's use combat trauma. What is what's going to happen in my office that's going to re-traumatize combat trauma? It's just not going to happen, right? So I I think that that's on us. We got to carry that, right? We got to we mental health professionals. We got to carry that. Absolutely. And, and a lot of it, again, that's that's uh, why we're trying to do this, uh, uh, trying to get this message out there through this podcast, through the blogs, through social media, um, that uh, that we 
uh, as a profession, need to be able to signal to the veterans that 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 need our service that that we've got this, that there is going to be somebody that can answer the door when you knock. Yep, absolutely. This has been a great conversation, Ted. I, I really appreciate it. Um, any last thoughts? Any final words? Uh, I, I appreciate um, this platform, and 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 Dwayne, I, I really got to say, I've been. Uh, I so enjoy your writing and your your podcasts and and your message. Um, I think it's I think it's an angle we need more of, right? Um, a vet, veterans talking to veterans about mental health about you know what what does a veteran need to know about going in to see a, a, a mental health professional? It's so helpful. It's so needed. Uh, so I'm just. Uh, um, I'm appreciative of, of your efforts in this platform, and thank you for uh, having me on. Well, absolutely, and in the same way, you know, I'm I'm appreciative of you and and other providers. Um, I, I say it often um, that uh, you don't have to be a veteran to treat veterans. Um, I my uh, clinical supervisor now, amazing. <laughs> she works with sex offenders, so I mean, I mean, I, I mean, she is and she is an amazing clinician, and she's not a a, a military service member. And so uh, she, like you and, and many of our other colleagues, have taken the time to learn to understand the culture and are as culturally competent. Um, you know, yes, I, I'm a native speaker of acronym. You've had <laughs> to learn the, the language of acronym, um, but you and I could probably have a, a perfectly good conversation in, in that language. And so I'm appreciative of you and, and, and being able to come on here and show veterans that Okay, yeah, he's not a vet, but I could sit there and I can talk to him because they can answer my needs. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. So there you have it. You know, I really enjoyed how Ted identified the need for mental health professionals to take the time to learn and understand veteran culture, but also the need for veterans to trust mental health professionals. Treatment works. I know it. Ted knows it. And it's been proven time and time again. You want to make sure the clinician you're going to see is going to understand your unique situation. But overall, you want to go somewhere that can help. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to the show. Now that you're here, make sure that you stick around by subscribing to your podcast player of choice. If you're not sure how to do it, drop me a line at Duane at VeteranMentalHealth.com. Make sure you spell it the right way, D-U-A-N-E. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows in the Change Your POV podcast network, Changing Hearts and Minds with my buddy Special Forces Weapons Sergeant Jeff Adamick, the show about outdoor adventures that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods with Andrew McDowell, and of course our flagship show hosted by Eddie Lazary and Bennett Tanton. Stick around next week when I talk to another veteran and mental health professional, Reg McCutcheon, and the work that he's doing in Georgia regarding veteran mental health. Or a couple days after this, Andrew McDowell and Jeff Adamek are going to be talking about the greatest battle implement ever invented on episode 18 of the Neophyte in the Woods podcast. Is it the P-38? Could it possibly be the Headspace and Timing Gauge? guess you'll have to tune in to find out. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd's somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to www.therealdoctod.com. 
check it out because remember veterans you're not alone ever The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.